0: To thank all of you people that have been kind enough to submit those stick pictures because I've got my own congregation right here looking at me right now in these stick pics. I'm telling you, these are some good looking people. Some of you look even better on the picture than you do in real life. I mean, these are some good looking pictures. Praise the name of the Lord. I've got Roger here and next to me, Lila didn't even send in a picture. It looks like Wilma, a picture of Wilma from the Flintstones. Now I'm going to get Lila because she's been derelict in her duty and turning in a photo. So we'll get get on top of her. All right. In the gospel of John chapter number two, praise the Lord. The Gospel of John, chapter number 2. I want to talk a little bit about blessings in unexpected places. Blessings in unexpected places. So in the Gospel of John, chapter number 2, beginning with verse number 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage and when they wanted wine the mother of Jesus saith unto him they have no wine Jesus saith unto her woman what have I to do with thee my hour is not yet come his mother saith unto the servants whatsoever he saith unto you do it And there were set six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. That would be approximately 180 or so gallons for the six pots. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made. I see some people trying to come on the inside here. What's going on there? And knew not whence it was, but the servants drew the water. They knew the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, Then that which is worse, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So blessings in unexpected places. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that we're able to minister to these folks on the radio station. We pray, God, that all of those listening now out in the parking lot, that you would speak to them. Help me, O God, to be able to unburden my heart of all that you've shown me here in the Scriptures. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen, amen. This is a story in the Bible that is not very often preached In fact, I think it's overlooked by many pastors and people, and I'm not sure why it is other than the whole issue of the wine. But the question that I've had over and over again is why would John include this particular story in his gospel? It says in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. According to John, he placed this in there in order to describe to people a particular scenario that proves Jesus is the Son of God. And he wanted it to be powerful enough that people would trust in the King. In chapter 1, when John begins, he explains to us that Jesus is God in the flesh. He tells us that in verse 14. Furthermore, he outlines for us how the disciples were called and the manner in which they began to follow him. One disciple named Philip went and got a friend named Nathanael, and you can see at the end of chapter 1 that when Nathanael approached Jesus in verse 47, Jesus said, I found an Israelite in whom there's no guile or deceit or deception. Nathanael said, how do you even know me? Jesus said, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And Nathanael was astonished and he said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. John's method is already working properly. And Jesus said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you will see greater things than these. And so chapter 2 introduces us to one of the many greater things that John describes in the gospel. Now this is the wedding in Cana, and there aren't too many people that would expect blessings upon them at a marriage celebration in this way. But marriages, of course, are occasions for joy. Do, do you remember your I do date? The time when you said to the lover of your heart that you wanted to spend the rest of your life with them. I certainly remember mine. When Tiffany and I got together and were married in baton rouge more than a couple of decades ago i still remember when brother swagger walked down that center aisle with me and we made that stop at the altar and he positioned me so i could look straight up that center aisle now the church seats over 5000 so you've got several aisles but one aisle that came from the back foyer all the way down to the altar is where I was standing, he was in the center, and he made sure I positioned myself so I could see Tiffany when she started making her way down the aisle. Now we stood there long enough to where I wondered whether or not Tiffany had forgot she was getting married that day, because the wedding coordinator was so consumed with trying to make sure Jimmy Swagger was happy, that she forgot to go and get my wife, for my bride to bring her down there and then of course when she finally made that appearance and she was in that beautiful white gown and she started making her way down there her and her dad were chuckling and whispering and I later found out that my father-in-law had said to Tiffany the car is still running in the parking lot if you are ready to get out of this right now well I forgive them every time I see them, even though every time I remember it, I bear a grudge. But I thank God for for a wonderful wedding, and it was a time of excitement and a time of joy. So this this is how it is in the Middle East, and certainly in ancient times. The customs of the Middle East today are very similar to this. My wife and I have both been involved with bride price negotiations, I have participated in marriages in the Middle East to watch the young men as they are yoked to the young ladies. The tradition of the ancient Jew and much of the Middle East today remains the same. The father of the young man who wants to get married, he approaches the prospective bride's parents and explains that he would like to see their daughter matched with his son. If those parents find that to be pleasing, then those parents then begin to talk about a meeting where they can negotiate the dowry. The dowry could be anything from a cow to a piece of land or hundreds of dollars. But once the marriage is announced and the betrothal or the engagement is established, it is as if they are legally married. And so this is why when Mary was engaged to Joseph and she was found with child, it was a scandal and Joseph's heart was broken. Well, when the couple is going to get married and the marriage is is coming together, it's at this point where the bridegroom, she'll assemble with a lot of different singers. And then they'll make their way down the street. They'll sing all kinds of Jewish songs or whatever songs are part of their culture. The bride is in the middle. Everybody's clapping their hands and dancing and singing. They go to where the marriage is going to take place. Meanwhile, where the celebration is going to occur after the ceremony, the food and beverages have already been arranged. Now, this is Galilee. According to verse one, Cana of Galilee. This was a place where there were numbers of people of different ethnic backgrounds. It was called Galilee of the nations because it was filled with people from a variety of different nations. And this is the area that the Bible speaks of as the land of milk and honey. The climate was such that you had lots of beehives in northern Israel. So you had the honey. The climate was such that you had lots of cattle in northern Israel rather than in southern Israel where Jerusalem was. where well, there were a lot of deserts. But at the same time, this part of Israel had a lot of vineyards. So naturally, there would be clusters of grapes all over this particular area. The scripture says that both Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his disciples and our Savior were there. Now, I don't really feel inclined to get into the whole ancient process of winemaking and the uh, traditions of fermentation, but I will tell you this, that for every part of wine that they inserted or included they used anywhere from three to five parts of water that i'm certain but imagine this though this is mary the mother of jesus this is the one that had the angel of the lord come to her when she was just a young lady jesus ministry of course began when he was 30 If Mary was a young lady of 14, 15, or 16, that would put her now at approximately her mid-40s because Jesus' ministry didn't commence until he was about 30 years of age. But there's a couple getting married. Multitudes of people have been gathered together. Family and friends have been assembled because the parents want there to be a lot of celebration. And I love the fact that Jesus is there because I believe anybody who's going to start off their married life should include the Lord Jesus in the ceremony and the celebration. No better way to begin married life than to have the presence Of the Lord there. Now, likely Jesus and the disciples, since they too were from that region, were probably friends of the bridegroom and the bride because, like here, rural Galilee was filled with towns that are as small as the towns that we have here in our counties in the heartland. So, obviously, they had some relationship with them. Neither Jesus nor his mother thought it was inconsistent with their faith to make it to the marriage they wanted to be there to celebrate with these people. Starting marriage life with the Lord. How did you start yours? And if you began your marriage life with Jesus, have you continued to maintain a relationship with Jesus throughout your marriage? These things are important. Especially today when the average marriage lasts approximately two to three years. I mean, people are changing spouses faster than you can change cups of coffee. We need to be able to maintain a relationship with the one that we said we love. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. Lots of joy, lots of excitement. Lots of happiness. But in the middle of all of the the, uh, gaiety and the joy that they were exhibiting, they ran out of wine. Now, if, if you've ever been to a marriage where they ran out of food or beverages, then you know that's not a nice thing at all. And it's an embarrassment for the family that is hosting it But obviously, somebody got close enough to Mary, or Mary overheard a conversation, and folks were saying, We have nothing left to drink. These folks wanted the wine. But notice that Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to him. You really do need to know where to go when you have a need. And if there's something in your life that is lacking, if there's something in your family that is missing, you really do need to know where to go. Jesus is the one that can supply your every need. There's no doubt about it. I know where I go as a pastor. I know where most of you go as sheep here in the church, but, but where do the rest of the nations go? Where do the other people on planet Earth go? There are some people, when they have a knee, they go to a witch doctor. We've met a lot of people in the nations as we've traveled that whenever they have a problem with a family member or an enemy, they'll go to a witch doctor and want the witch doctor to, to put some kind of voodoo on somebody. Some people go to a medicine man or a medicine woman as they do in Tibet, or sometimes amongst our Native American cultures, looking for somebody that'll be able to bring a healing that they particularly want. Some people will go to various temples. Think about the folks in Japan that are involved with Shintoism, and they go to the temples and pray to die. Or the folks in Hinduism, so many gods they can't even number the gods that they have. I saw one temple one time that was dedicated to the the rat. Can you imagine going to a temple that's overflowing with thousands and thousands of rats running around the courtyards, but they're under the impression that this rat god is holy. When they have problems, they go there. This is a wedding celebration for the Jews And Mary, the mother of Jesus, knows exactly where she needs to go. And she, having heard of the burden, she didn't go to anybody else but to her son. Now, why did she go to him? Well, she knew he was unique. The angel of the Lord came to her when she was without a child and unmarried and said, you're going to have a child. His name will be Jesus. His ministry will be to heal people and save people and lead them back to God. She remembered that when he was born, there were people that came from nearby and brought gifts There were people that made a trip all the way from the region of Iran and Iraq and they traveled for nearly two years and opened up their treasures unto him. They knew, she knew that her son was special. And she can't forget that when he was 12, they were at the temple and she accidentally left him there and started making the trip going back home, had to return to the temple. And when she got there, she said, Jesus, why have you done this? Why aren't you with us traveling home? And Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. Now if that would have happened today. Somebody would have called social services or child protective services. But Jesus knew his mission. Mary knew that he had a mission. And now that he has come back from the region of Judea and he has these disciples that are trailing him, she knows this must be the season where his ministry is going to be, uh, be, be initiated. So she goes to him and she says, son, they've run out of wine here at this place. Now Notice, notice his reply in verse 4. Woman, what have I to do with you? Now, in English, that sounds strong and somewhat disrespectful. It wasn't. That greeting of woman was very similar to how we would say, Madam or Mrs. Even on the cross, Jesus had his disciples around him, and he looked at his mother and said, Woman, behold your son. Talking about John. Said, John, behold your mother. Saying to John, take care of Mama once I die on this cross. He wasn't being disrespectful. But the phrase or the question simply means, how is your business my business right now? We're at a wedding celebration. These folks have run out of their liquor. How does this have anything to do with me? Jesus said my hour hadn't even come. Chapter 7, verse 30, Jesus speaks again about his hour in chapter 12 verse 27 he speaks about his hour approaching chapter 13 verse 1 he speaks about the hour had come when he would surrender his life he understood times and seasons he recognized that his life was a matter of periods in which the calling of God on his life was going to determine what he did and where he went He knew that he had to go to Calvary for your sins and for mine. He knew the moment was approaching when he would breathe his last breath after he had been stricken and beaten and smitten and bludgeoned for you and for me. He endured all of that. They hung him between earth and heaven on a cross. The people walked by and wagged their fingers at him and turned their nose up at him. Some even cursed him thinking he wasn't worthy of even being alive. They said he was a traitor to the nation of Rome. He was deserving of death. And Jesus is telling his mother here at this celebration, my hour hadn't come yet. This isn't the time when I'm supposed to be manifesting myself to people. He's trying to keep so many things hidden. He's trying to keep so many things a secret. But Mary the mother recognizes there's a need. Now in every life, there are different seasons. And all of us pass through these seasons. In fact, your desires change according to the seasons of life. When you're a toddler or an infant, your desires are fairly simple. You want a little rattler you can play with that makes as much noise as possible. Anything that shines or glitters, you want it in your hands, and if you see your little brother or older sister or somebody else holding on to it, you walk right over there and snatch it and take it, and you don't even care. But when you become 14 or 15, The shiny things don't really hold an appeal anymore. You're not looking for baby toys. The desires are changing because of your age. By the time you hit your mid-twenties and you're having to deal with paying bills and becoming a responsible person and you're thinking about family, at that point in your life, your desires have already changed. You wanted a spouse and children thinking about settling down to have a house, house note, cars. But when you're about 50 or 55, your desires are still changing. I don't think you run into too many people that are 50 and 55 that want to go back and relive all their 20s unless they can make different decisions again. And by the time you're 75, working towards 80, I don't think I've ever met an 80-year-old man or woman that's praying to become a mom one more time. Oh, my, wouldn't that be something? Somebody said, Pastor, I've got a prayer request. What's the prayer request, sister? I've, I just celebrated my 82nd birthday, and I want you to pray, and I want the church to agree that, that I'll get pregnant one more time. I haven't had that request made ever in any of our churches, and I don't expect it to be raised at all. You don't even find 80-year-olds that are wanting to take on another mortgage at this time in their life. Time frames and seasons bring about differences in desires. Jesus says to this lady, his mother, my hour hasn't even ever come yet or hasn't come yet. So he, she knows that he's going to respond to her. So in verse number five, the mother says to the servant, she didn't even talk to his disciples. She said to the workers there who were employed to help serve at the wedding, said, whatever he tells you to do, that's what you do. That's the kind of servant I hope all of us are. I hope we're the kind of people that whatever the Lord tells us to do, we'll do it. If God tells you to go and apologize to somebody because what you said was said with the wrong spirit or the wrong attitude, even if you were right, would you be willing to do it? If God spoke to you and said, I want you at this time to go to the nearest grocery store, And I want you to spend $250 on a card and give it to so-and-so that doesn't have much. Would you be willing to do it? Whatever he says to do, do it. This is important. There have been a whole lot of people in the body of Christ who have read the scriptures and discovered that the Bible said, go into all the world. And when they read that, they believed that meant them. They took it as a personal Word to their heart. How about the people that that realize the scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself. There have been a whole lot of people that realize they have not walked in love as they should. And they prayed and said, God, help me to do this. Whatever he says for you to do, you should do it. Sometimes God will tell us to do things that we think are difficult, but really aren't difficult at all when you consider the sacrifice of Christ. No deed is too hard, no obstacle is too great to overcome if you constantly remind yourself that he surrendered his life at Calvary on your behalf. The debt we owe to him is so great. You say, Pastor, you don't realize are a lot of times at the end of the week, I'm exhausted, I'm tired, I don't always have time to, to read my Bible, and, you know, gathering for a church service isn't the easiest because Sunday is my only day off, and I'd rather do this, I'd rather do that. I'm telling you, no command of God is too difficult for you to obey. It's important to know this. And anything God tells you to do, he'll give you grace to get it done. Now, I do realize there are things that he will tell you to do that in the, at the moment that you hear it, you feel incapable of accomplishing it. But God will always supply the grace that you need in order to achieve the task. With God, all things are possible. So Mary said to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. Well, the six water pots that were there, those were for purification purposes. The ancient Jews were very restrictive when it came to how they could approach one another. They had a lot of laws and traditions. The gospel calls them traditions of elders. I don't know if you've ever seen a set of Jewish uh, books called the Talmud, but they are about 55 volumes, maybe eight or 900 pages each. And you have different kinds of traditions that have accumulated through thousands of years. But the greater bulk of them have to do with how to maintain cleanliness and holiness, purification purposes. Somebody who wanted to come into this wedding celebration would have had to go over to the pot, put their hands in the water, lift their waters up, wipe their hands up, clean their hands, maybe their face, but certainly their feet. You know that Jesus even talked about going into people's homes and they offered them a bowl of water for the cleansing of their feet because they've been traveling. They didn't wear the kinds of shoes that we wear. Nobody had Nikes on at this wedding celebration. These folks were wearing sandals, no high heels, sandals, the top of the foot, totally exposed, And the waters of purification were to make sure that even though it was a wedding celebration, they were keeping kosher. And 180 gallons of water essentially disappeared. That tells you there were a whole lot of people there. Since we've been going through this whole Corona thing, I'd like to know how many bottles of Pirel some of you have gone through. And how many bottles or aerosol spray cans of Lysol you've gone through. And this isn't even because of a law that says you have to do this to maintain holiness. This is just strictly because you're trying to keep yourself from catching something. But imagine if it was a religion of your heart that you had to wash and clean all the time. That's what they did. And Jesus looked at those servants, and looked at those water pots that were not full, and he said, Fill them up. That's exactly what they did. Now, here is the beginning of what we call the working of miracles. If you want to see a miracle take place in somebody's life, if you want God to do something great and powerful for you, you've got to be willing to participate in it. And in the on the other side of every obedient act, there is a blessing. But here you can find that a blessing is going to occur in unexpected places. Not just at the wedding celebration, but here at the water pots. This is where the blessing is going to occur. I don't think that... In this particular place, and I've been to Cana on several occasions, but the average well was outside of the town limits. Occasionally, you'd have a well inside the village where all the ladies and the people could go to draw water, but because cattle were oftentimes taken to the well, the well was on the outside of the town. You know, somewhat similar out here where you have whales that are always right there at the house, but at a distance from the house or maybe a gushing spring that somebody would have. So, I'm trying to draw a picture in your mind then of these servants having to walk to a well, then fill up some kind of container, then turn around and walk all the way back, and they've got to fill it up to the point where there are 180 gallons. Folks, I'm telling you, they were walking for a while. They were walking. But they're obeying Christ. They're doing what Jesus told them to do. And once they finally got it filled to the brim, where it was about to start overflowing the sides, that's when Jesus said, now I want you to take a cup, draw some out, take it over there to the governor. He's the one that is probably the the, the one that's the head of the feast, who arranged it all. He'll be the one that will handle the toasts like we have people that do it at, at places where we have celebrations for, for weddings. But here is the, the water pots that are filled, and they take it, take it over to the governor, and the governor, he, he takes that and he drinks it, and he says, well, I don't think I've quite ever had anything like this. Oh, my. He says, this doesn't sound like anything that grandma and grandpa brewed down in the basement said, no, no, that's, that's not what, what this is. He couldn't even think of a country that produced anything this good. He didn't even know a vineyard worker that had ever been involved with grapes that had produced something as tasty as this. So when he had tasted the water made wine, not knowing where it was from, and that's when he made his statement about the good and the bad wine. Now he didn't know about the miracle. The servants did. I don't think the rest of the people at the celebration knew about the miracle. Servants did, and it's good to walk with God to be able to have inside information. There are things that God will do that will be miraculous for you and you will know about it and the people around you will have no idea that the hand of God is involved with it. And there have been plenty of times I've heard people say, oh, there's nothing miraculous about that. God did nothing miraculous about, about you saying that God did this or God did that. Well, it may not be for you, but for the servants involved, we know the reality of God's presence and what he did. Liberal commentators on this text in their books they like to say well the water pots were never really empty but there were the dregs of the previous wine inside of it and when they poured the water into the pot it mixed with the dregs and gave it a whiny taste. I know that wasn't the case simply because these were pots for water purification. They weren't wine pots or wine skins. The Jews would never have put their uh, wine inside of a place for purification. But that man said most people put out the good wine first. And then when everybody has filled themselves, that's when you put out the bad stuff because most folks by then won't even realize it's bad because they're under the power of inebriation. And you know that's true. Most families have got somebody or someone or people who just don't know when to stop. If you don't know when to stop, the cure for all of that is to tell you right up front, if you don't ever start, then you don't have to worry about knowing if you have an appetite and you can't stop. So verse number 10, he said, you've kept the best for last. Now I wonder why in the world would John put this story right at the head of of his gospel, and I think it's real simple, and here's the answer. Anything that is a result of the divine work of God will always be so much better than the work of man. That's what the rest of the gospel is going to be about. Demonstrating that everything that comes from God, anything that's a product of the miracle work and power of God is always going to be greater than anything a man's hands can produce. I don't care how many vineyard people there are on planet Earth. Doesn't matter to me how many steels there are in the Appalachian Mountains or how many families out here are actually fermenting wine in their basements. I can promise you this. They'll never be able to create anything that'll be as tasty and as lovely as what comes from God. And what the Bible tells me is clear one day. We're all going to sit down in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, I won't drink wine again until I sit down with you in the kingdom and drink it. That'll be when wine touches Pastor Darrell's lips. In the kingdom of God with his loving Savior. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Do you have a need this morning? Are you expecting God to do anything for you? Are you in need of God to work a miracle in your life? Is there some substance, something that you need him to transform in order for you to be able to enjoy the benefits of it? I can tell you God's able to do it. There's nothing in your life so unremarkable that God can't turn around and heal and bless and change it. If you're having monetary problems, God is fiscally sound and he's the best banker on the planet. If you're in need of some health issues to be recovered, I can tell you he's the greatest physician this world has ever known. And if you trust him, you'll find God won't ever let you down. As we get ready to depart from this place, but never from the presence of God, as we pull off of this parking lot and you make your way back home, just remember the angel of the Lord encampeth about those that fear him. You're not departing this place alone because you didn't come here alone. God's presence was with you and nothing's going to change. Everybody at the celebration were happy and joyful. And I believe that when God gives us a miracle or a blessing, it puts a smile on our face. The happiest people on planet Earth are those that know the King. Let's pray. Father, for that man or woman, that boy or girl that's under the sound of my voice today, I pray, God, that you'd give them a merry feast because you said that a happy, happy spirit is like a continual feast. I pray, God, that your hand of blessing would be upon every soul, that your presence, your peace would fill every automobile and every heart right now as we're praying. We thank you for the mighty anointing of God that breaks and destroys yokes. We thank you for the joy of the Lord being released in our lives, God. And whether or not we come into contact with bitter people, depressed people, I pray, God, that our hearts will be illuminated by the joy of the Lord. We honor you today, and we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' mighty, mighty name, and everyone said, Amen, 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 Amen. All right, folks, honk them horns if you understood what we were talking about today.